To heal is to touch with love that which we previously touched with fear. My name is Andrea, and this is Adult Child. Welcome back to Adult Child, where we take a deep dive into the impact of growing up in a dysfunctional family. Ahoy, my dear, dear shit shows, shit show nation. For any new listeners, my name is Andrea and I am a total shit show. I am the captain of this ship. I am an acquired taste. We curse here. You've been warned. And this is where we talk vulnerably and honestly about what it is like to grow up in an alcoholic or dysfunctional family, the ways in which that screws up our lives as adults, and what the hell to do about it. So welcome aboard. Buckle up. It's a strange ride here, okay? (laughs) So today, we are joined by Dr. Sophia Voss. I said that weird. We are joined by Dr. Sophia Voss. So she is a fellow shit show just like us. So I first came across her on YouTube. So she has a great YouTube channel where she talks about all of this adult child shit. She has a, a book, a wonderful book. It is titled Misery to Mastery, Straight Talking Facts and Worksheets to Conquer Symptoms of Being an Adult Child of an Alcoholic. Who doesn't like a book that has straight talking facts in the title, y'all? I'm into that. And she's a coach. She has a an eight-week online workshop for adult children. And this is just a great conversation where we are talking about her experience as an avoidant attacher. And on that note, I just, I need to say something, guys, I, something I've noticed. So when I'm listening, to, I was listening to the interview with her. And um, once again, I heard myself make this point about how I feel like being um, an, an anxious attacher is so much more painful than being an avoidant attacher. And I've said this many times, and I realized, I don't know what the hell I'm talking about. I've never been an avoidant attacher before. How do I know if their experience is any less painful than mine. I was thinking about how for many years I thought that that this was before I realized just truly how big of a shit show I was. I, I always thought that being the addict was a lot more painful than being the codependent. Well, I've since realized that I actually think it's a lot worse to be an active codependency than it is to, to be an active addiction. So who the hell am I to say that being an anxious attacher is more painful than being an avoidant attacher? So I just want to apologize to any avoidant attachers that perhaps I've pissed off along the way. All right, let's just move it along. Uh, but first, let's talk about why you, yes, you need to damn the join shit show. This is my online community where I host weekly Zoom support groups. This is where you can connect with other fellow shit shows. This is really a place where people feel safe, getting real and raw and vulnerable. This is a place where you will not be judged at all. Everyone gets your crazy. So how about you damn the join shit show? You owe it to yourself. Just give it a shot. Just give it a damn shot. It's worth your life. You can quit in a month. So you, the person that's been wanting to do it for uh, for forever, how about you just do it right now? See the show notes for the link to join. Next, give me a little follow on the Insta on the TikTok at Adult Child Pod. And last but not least, give me a damn five-star rating on Apple and Spotify. Thank you. Love you all. All right, y'all. 
Well, here, I'm going to try it. Okay, I practiced a couple times. We have Dr. Sophia. Oh, Lord. Now I'm psyching myself out. Vasileva. No, that was not good. Vasileva. You know, you can't just say Dr. Sophia Boss. I'm from a one to a 10. What do I get? Like a five at least? Oh, no, you're, you're doing an excellent job. You're oh, getting wow. what, okay. You would have to learn the whole language to really get a 10. But, but yeah. So I came so across your YouTube channel probably like, I don't know, maybe six months ago and I got your book. You work with recovering shit shows with people who grew up in a dysfunctional family. And I believe you're an, an ACA shit show yourself. That is correct. That is 100% accurate. Yes. I am an adult child of an alcoholic myself. I grew up in an alcoholic family. I did not realize that I have any sorts of problems until I started to experience panic attack. My heart is just beating out of my chest. Literally, I'm dying. And, you know, I didn't really pay attention to it until it got to the point where I wasn't able to function on a daily basis. Mm -hmm. I wasn't able to actually, you know, concentrate and focus. And so I went to see a therapist and I come in, you know, and of course- How old were you? I was about 24. And I do some research beforehand, of course, because I don't trust anyone. I'm super avoidant. I don't share my problems because I have none, or at least to the best of, course, of my knowledge. Duh. <laughs> and I'm breezing through life. I'm doing great. But then my heart is just beating out of my chest. And so I do some research. You know, first I go to a medical doctor and get my heart checked. Then he prescribes SSRIs. He prescribes, you know, Xanax. And I'm like, you know, I'm actually, I'm, I'm just going to see a therapist. I was always, you know, a little bit on the anti-med side. Not, not that I am now, but. And I thought, you know, I'm going to try to not take these pills. And so I do some research and I go to a therapist and I go, I need you to work on cognitive behavioral therapy with me and teach me how to get over my panic attacks. And, you know, she says, oh, you know, what's going on? And so I explained to her about my panic attacks and how my heart is beating out of my chest and I'm sitting there and I'm like, okay, so now it's your turn to teach me, you know, how to fix this because this is getting <laughs> this point. <laughs> Had you ever you been know, in therapy before? I have not. I have not. Yeah, okay. I never felt I had a need. And so she goes, well, tell me a little bit about your relationships. And she starts asking me all these questions and, you know, I'm kind of sharing with her, but the whole time I'm thinking, lady, I didn't come to you to talk to you about my relationships. I came to you with a very specific goal here. Okay. I need you to help me fix my panic attacks. And I shared so much with her in the session that I walked out and I just had a complete meltdown because to this point, I'd never shared so much with a stranger. You know, maybe I shared a little bit with my friends who had a similar experience. You know, we had maybe alcoholic families in common, but generally it was a secret for me that, mm -hmm. you know, that I come from this alcoholic family, the fact that I was struggling with things, but wasn't even really made conscious. I was kind of treading through life, focusing on my career and having fun and enjoying things. And so, you know, I, I couldn't get over it. I, I just like, I felt like I was thrown out of my orbit and it took me kind of two weeks to recover and I did not go back to see this therapist, but instead I started to do a lot of independent research because I was still not at the point where I could trust someone, where I can go into a room and share these things with a stranger. I felt like I was being put under a microscope and it, it was too difficult for me. It was intolerable. Mm -hmm. And so I started so much that I got really interested in psychology and I went you know, back to school to study psychology and... I did actually learn how to overcome my own panic attacks at the time without seeing a therapist. And that had to do with, you know, doing the counterintuitive thing, which is actually looking into your symptoms and connecting mm -hmm. with them. Also mm -hmm. began to teach me how to connect with my emotions. And so I started studying this and went to school 
to study psychology. I went back to therapy and, you know, realized that I have to learn to make these human connections and be vulnerable and be able to share, you know, with a person who's qualified and is getting paid to listen. Right. And so that was the least I can do. And I started, you know, my own therapeutic journey, ended up going to grad school for clinical psychology, continued therapy, going to Al-Anon and ACA meetings. And that is also when I just started to write out my experience on paper and also from what I was learning from the meetings and listening to other people and thinking about the different kind of configurations, the the different things that happen to people in dysfunctional families. And that is how, you know, eventually wrote the book and built a workshop for adult children of alcoholics and started working with adult children as well. Do you remember when you were in that, that first therapy session, when you're saying like, you know, talking about relationship stuff out loud. Do you remember what you shared that was so, you know, impactful or you felt so raw and exposed? Was it mostly stuff that was going on in the present or it was past relationships? It was in the present. So I remember her asking me if I'm in a romantic relationship and I said, no. And she asked other questions, you know, why is that? Or do you date? Or, you know, what kind of people do you find attractive or something along those lines? And I just thought to myself, I felt really offended. You know, I felt like this is not what I'm here to talk about. And I saw that she had an interest in that, right? And and now looking back, I understand what she was doing. She was trying to assess how it relates to people, how, you know, if I'm able to connect, how I think people perceive me, how I perceive other people, right? How is my world influenced and how I feel about these things, but I wasn't even able to talk about it. And I just thought it was very odd <laughs> that I came there to treat my panic attacks. And here she was asking me about my relationships. And yeah. It's so interesting, like the difference in story, right? Because like you here you are, you show up like at 24 and you don't know, you know, you're kind of oblivious to what is actually going on with you versus like my experience of like being shoved in therapy at nine years old, you know? Yeah. So w- were you aware that there was alcoholism in your family prior to that? Absolutely. Like, did you realize? Okay. So what was yeah. your experience with that? Talk about your childhood and when you, like, when you realized that you were, you know, growing up in an alcoholic family. My dad suffers from alcoholism. He has never really attempted to recover. He's not recovered. He is a lifelong alcoholic. And so there was a lot of chaos in my family. There was a lot of fighting. There was a lot of drinking. And interestingly enough, Andrea, I was listening to your podcast and I really love how authentic you are and how much you share of your story. And, you know, I'm sure that it touches so many people's hearts. And there's so many people out there listening to this. I'm thinking, wow, the same thing happened to me. And I remember on one of the podcasts, you shared that you remember your parents fighting and there was something that like aroused you to almost keep paying attention for that. Right. And so one of my first memories in life was me, you know, just sleeping. And all of a sudden, in the middle of the night, I hear my parents fighting and I wake up. Right. And so I'm listening to them fighting and there's all this like hypervigilance. And I remember them like slowing down and maybe they stopped fighting or some, at some point or they went to sleep. But I almost remember feeling like, oh, my God, like I want this to continue. Like I don't want mm. this to stop fighting to go on. And I remember thinking to myself, and this is literally my first memory, just like judging myself, like, what's wrong with me? Why would I want my parents to fight? Why would I want to to be in this situation? And I just felt like, you know, that feeling that there's something deeply and profoundly, and that feeling, of course, has stuck with me throughout my life, just this feeling of, I want sick things or something, you know? And 
So, and then you shared that on the podcast and I thought, wow, what a similar experience, right? That, that addiction to excitement. Addiction to excitement. Definitely. Yeah. Did your parents talk about, was the topic of like alcoholism present as a kid? Yeah. So my mom did a really good job in many ways and you know, it's really helpful, right. To have the one sober parent and my mom would, you know, times to time sit me down and she would tell me, you know, our dad is sick. He has this problem with alcoholism. So at least I knew that, right. It's a problem. And that it was acknowledged at least by my mom. It was never acknowledged by my dad, but it was acknowledged by my mom. And we did, you know, talk about alcoholism. And that was honestly very helpful. I remember those conversations and I remember that it made a very positive impact on me that it was affirming. Yeah. Did you have siblings? I did have an older sister and she's quite a bit older. We have an 11 year age difference and she was a positive impact in some ways as well, because sometimes when she would come home, she didn't live with us. So I, I actually almost never remember living with her because she left home when she was 16, as I did as well. But I remember spending time with her and just feeling kind of really safe for her coming home. And it would feel like a sense of safety. There's another person that understands my experience. And then I think growing up, we had a lot of conversations, I still do, about what it was like and also the what we experience today, right? Maybe the, you know, how we see the world or what we find attractive and that, you know, it's really helpful to also have a, a positive figure in that sense. Was her experience similar to yours? Like when, you know, when she was growing up, cause she left at 16. I mean, was she, and it's kind of interesting because you guys both kind of almost had like only child experiences in a way. We did have only child experiences and it was very similar and yeah, it's so helpful to talk about it now. And, you know, the route that I take for myself and also what I'd like to work with my clients is taking that experience and turning it into a positive because I think of things like codependency or being an adult child of an alcoholic is almost like a constitutional trait. I don't think of it as a disease. I think of it as a constitutional personality trait that can be directed towards something that is of value and purpose for the world. So for example, you know, this attraction to excitement. This attraction to excitement also allowed me to stay really calm and I am attracted to chaotic situations. So for example, you know, I worked, <laughs> at, you know, I worked at a residential facility, you know, for people with pretty severe psychopathologies. And I was really good at that. Like I can easily work in an emergency room, right? I can, I think some of my, you know, personality constitution can be like, can work, you know, as an ambulance worker, right? And so this trait, it's not something that I can get rid of right? Mm -hmm. Excitement. And it's not something I necessarily want to get rid of, mm -hmm. but you know, I don't want to be excited by like drunk men at the bar or something. Right. Cause that's not healthy, but I could experience that similar energy and also bring value and purpose to the world because I'm trained, right. I, it's in me that I have this experience. I, I don't know what you think about that. Or like, if you feel like you've experienced like kind of taking some of these facets of your life and being like, you know what, this is actually useful. Well, I if think that this podcast, I mean, pretty much, right? Like me doing this. Yeah, absolutely. I think that my vulnerability, you know, and my ability to just to be so raw and open and, you know, I think almost some of that is, I almost think some of that is, is rooted in the fact that I was like forced to go to therapy 
and treatment so young that like I've just been kind of it's almost like the I feel like this and granted I'm sober now and it's a little bit different but I feel like this aspect of myself became such a part of my identity like at such a young age especially being you know like a teenage alcoholic and getting sent away and stuff so yeah I think that's why I feel so comfortable opening up in such public ways just because I was kind of forced to be the one to talk about their shit in the family you know I wouldn't have it any other way though like if I could take it all back, you know, I wouldn't change any of my experiences. Like it's fucking sucked at times, you know, it's been extremely painful, but it shaped me into who I am today. And every time I'm in like the support groups for my community, like I just feel, I feel like so incredibly honored that, you know, to have all these people in my life, you know, I, I think about that too, about how what was it that I really craved and needed when I was really in my darkest hours? And how that's been like cultivated through starting my community. And it's really, it's just that sense of being just like completely understood, you know, and just kind of accepted for my crazy. Because even though I had friends like in AA, they didn't really get it. You know, they didn't really get like the, the complex PTSD aspect of it, you know. And so just to be like so held and understood for the things that I felt made me so, I felt like I was the only one for so long as I think so many of us do. And um, to be accepted and loved and understood for the aspects of myself that I felt like pushed people away is like such a beautiful experience, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, you're shining light onto these feelings that people from dysfunctional families, alcoholic families experience. And it makes people feel like I'm not alone. And Mm -hmm. that in itself is so healing. It is. And also too, like the, I've been thinking about this a lot lately too, as it relates to like the abandonment issues and the complex PTSD. And granted, I can definitely make a lot of progress and heal and change in in certain ways, but kind of like what you were saying, like the addiction to excitement is like always going to be there. Like I'm always going to struggle with like abandonment issues. It doesn't matter like how much work I do on myself. It's always going to be there. It's always going to be a part of me. And so I realized that, especially like in intimate relationships, like I have to be upfront and honest. That's, you know, that's like a part of, of who I am. At least I have the awareness, but you know, this is just part of the deal, (laughs) you know, like there's going to be times where I'm going to feel like, you know, convinced that this person's abandoning me and, and granted I have tools now, but like, I think that the likelihood that I'll never experience an emotional flashback related to like abandonment for the rest of my life is like a pretty, pretty low chance that will go away. You know, it's always going to be there. And so it's like learning how to one, um, learning tools for that. And then also making sure that, you know, you have the people in your life who can accept that part of you, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Really owning it. How's it going with relationships? It's, I mean, there's not much going on, (laughs) but it's definitely, It's been, you know, I have had the opportunity though to express that and to, in some dating that I've done as far as, hey, when you don't, when I don't hear back from you, like that makes me feel like I'm going to (laughs) die, you know, and be able to like share things that in the past I would have been so scared to, to share. What I've noticed is like the bounce back is so much like, you know, quicker now that like I might kind of start to at times spiral But whereas in the past, you know, I could live in that space for like for forever, you know, it might last for like an hour 
And just to have the ability to know what the hell is going on is everything. You know, it's still like, you know, that it's not, you know, that what you're experiencing doesn't have to do with the present, although it like 1000% feels like it does. But even though you tell yourself like this is that I think is such an interesting experience of when, you know, you first really start to realize to be able to notice in the moment, like when you're going into these emotional flashbacks and it's such a surreal experience to have one part of you that feels like it's so real and so about the present and that this other part of you that is like realizes that your body is reacting to trauma of the past, you know, it's such a weird experience to like be able to witness that, you know? Yes. But to be able to to witness it is so beautiful, right? Because you can own it, feel it and experience it. And it doesn't mean that you have to just act on it, right? Or react. That was and, it. And at the times you get these you know, beautiful, emotional repair experiences, whether it's with a therapist that you can share this with and you get this really kind, positive feedback, right? Or even with a person, like if you share with someone, you know, I feel like I'm going to die and there's not a judgment against you. There's mm-hmm. not, well, you know, well, that's your problem or, you know, whatever it is. And that, that doesn't mean that the person now needs to like hypervigilantly sit there with their phones, right? And respond to every single text message immediately within the first, you know, one minute or so. But to be kind and accepting of that and to have mm-hmm. these emotions, it just just transforms you, right? It's just like magic. Yeah. And it takes away so much of the shame. So you mentioned that you were, so you were more avoidant. I, yes, I was. I'm jealous. Have you heard about my, have you heard about my, um, my attachment style condiment theory? Have you heard this? I have not, but I would love to hear it. Okay. So I think that people that are like anxious attachers, like we fucking love condiments and people who are more avoidant, they might like, like a little bit of mustard, but like not many condiments. They like things more plain. Do you fall in line with this? I'm, I'm trying to, I'm, I'm trying to understand. So liking things more plain as in. Just like, you know, for me, it's like, I got to have ketchup and I got to have something on everything. Like, you know, I want a million sauces on what I'm eating, but I found that, you know, people that are more avoidant, they might like a little bit of mustard, but they're not saucing it up too much. Yeah, that is correct. I, I think when I was, I think I'm really more. See, it's true. I'm telling you, it's 95% accurate, this theory. Yeah. <laughs> I love this analogy, actually. You know, and I'm going to be more secure, but in the past, you know, I wasn't able to tolerate, let's say, going on a long date. Okay. Like if I was going on a date, you know, it had to be like an hour and a half tops. <laughs> if I Even started- if it was somebody that like you've been with for a while or just in the initial stages. In the initial stages, but if it was someone that I've been with for a while, I wouldn't be able to spend a weekend with that person. Maybe Friday night, you know, a little bit of Saturday, but Sunday, whether I had plans or not, I had plans. I was out. I was not able to tolerate just on a physiological level that, you know, being close with people for an extended period of time. And what about girlfriends? Like, could you do that with friends? Like, could you spend a weekend with friends or was it or that too? Yeah, non-romantic, non-romantic relationship. Yeah, that was easy. So I was really fortunate to always have had really great girlfriends and generally have, you know, had amazing friends and be able to spend time with people. Although I will say that to this day, I frequently think, you know, not with all my girlfriends, but with friends that are like they're very close with that know me really well. Like I catch myself having this thought, are they tired of me? 
this thought, oh, this person must be really tired of me. And it does sometimes influence my behavior, even, you know, I'll get like really quiet or whatever and like just feel like, ah, I need, you know, so I do experience that, but it was definitely easier with girlfriends and with friends over romantic relationships. Those were tough. And I think I always, because I had a pretty positive relationship with my mom and with my sister, I had very positive relationships with women and very difficult relationships with men. So were you typically attracted to more anxious attachers? I was, no. Interestingly enough, I know they say this very frequently is that, you know, Mm -hmm. avoid avoidance, don't end up being together. But for me, I was mostly attracted to avoidance. And, you know, those relationships would last for years, but we would only see each other maybe like once a month. So, and, you know, it was suitable. It was suitable for both. And I had, you know, I appreciate the people that did come into my life and did teach me lessons. Yeah. So do you think it it just being somebody who's like an anxious attack, like the thought of being avoidant, it just boggles my mind. And it also just sounds honestly, I know if they both suck, but like, I just think that being anxious is a lot more painful. <laughs> Anyways, it's miserable. It's a miserable experience. <laughs> You know, I don't know because I haven't been on the anxious side very much, but the literature says at least, you know, I don't know from personal experience, but the literature yeah. said avoidant people actually experience significantly more pain, but really? they show it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That, well, there, there was actually, there was actually a study where they, it was a skin conductivity test. So they like measure how much stuff there's going on, like how, how much people are reacting and sweating and also measuring heart rate. And they found that with people who are avoidant, their heart rate pulse was significantly Oh, I think I heard this. Yeah, 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 yeah. Over the anxious attachers, because I think you're anxious attachers, you at least give yourself the opportunity, you, you give yourself the permission to, you know, maybe message someone an extra amount of times or like talk about your problem. It doesn't then- feel like permission. <laughs> it, feel- <laughs> it feels like no choice. Yeah. Yeah, like a compulsion, right? Yes, yes. <laughs> but I think perhaps with, you know, with people who are anxiously attached, you attract people who support you. Like it's more like when I was in my avoidance stage, if I had any problems, I, I never talked about it. Because more anxiously attached would, you know, start talking about it and talking really fast. And I love anxious attachers, you know, many of my friends are. And so I, you know, I support them. <laughs> and by supporting them, I also support myself, really. But there's more of a, it's basically more of an opportunity for help, you know, when you're, mm-hmm. when you're for it. And so I actually, yeah, I mean, it's, it's hard to say which one is more. No, I, I know it. Yeah. It's different. It's just, just, yeah, it just is a miserable experience to be sitting there waiting for somebody to text you back. So can we unpack this? Like, what have you, because is, is it a fear of engulfment that really lies at the root of it for you? Like, what were some of the, what are some of the limiting beliefs that you've unpacked about yourself that really lay at the core of your avoidant attachment? Yeah. So early, you know, I, I think earlier in my life, it was a feeling of not being good enough and it was a feeling of not wanting to disclose. So, you know, as I mentioned, like seeing someone once a week was perfect because there was not much of an opportunity for me to talk about myself. And I would ask people about them and learn about them. It was also really cautious. So I would want to make sure, you know, that I know and understand everything about this, you know, particular individual. And I just did not, you know, when it would come for me to talk about me or talk about my experience, I would shut down. And in that shutting 
also want distance because, you know, I wasn't able to talk about these things even to a therapist that I paid. <laughs> so imagine being like on a date or, you know, being close with someone. Yeah, a lot of it has to do with just shame and just not feeling good enough and just feeling like, oh God, you know? Yeah, you know, I remember, even remember telling my friends, like, I don't know, I was like 21 or 22, I would say, I'm never going to get married because, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to meet someone who's, you know, wonderful and from a wonderful family. And I always had very high standards, by the way. So, you know, I'm going to meet somebody who's wonderful and from a wonderful family and that and I, and there's going to come a time where I'm going to meet their family and it's going to be all great. But then there's going to be a time where they're going to have to meet my family. And I would not be able to withstand that. Therefore, mm -hmm. I decided that I'm just not even going to, you know, I had such a fear around that, that I'm not even going to enter into a serious relationship because there's going to be a time where, you know, this is going to mm -hmm. happen. And so early on, it was about that. And then once I worked on those issues and was able to share my experience and be able to own it, it became more about, you know, it was just a physiological, you know, at some point I would feel like I'm literally being fried on a frying pan. Like it's like mm -hmm. my whole link and I, you know, I didn't know why. And I wanted relief from the anxiety. And that is how the psyche works is that it, it's so difficult for us to experience anxiety that we want relief from it at any cost to go mm -hmm. back to. And in my case, my safety is being by myself because when I was growing up in my home, I was able to find activities where I can entertain myself, spend time by myself, read books do fun things. And so for me, that was super, super comfortable. Were you a lost child? I was more of a lost child. I was a kind of a scapegoat slash mm -hmm. lost child. Yeah. Okay. Slash lost child. And so it was, you know, it was really easy for me to just retreat. And that felt safe rather than being with someone, especially for an extended period of time, which just gave me such an immense, just physiological anxiety. And at that point, I, I, you know, also learned to tap into my body and tap into my sensations without placing judgments on it. So the ability to just feel and experience what you're experiencing by naming emotions and naming like, wow, like I just feel, yeah, like a sardine on a frying pan or something and not, you know, blame the situation or the person or decide that this person is not right for me as I did in the past. And so then being able to tune into my physiological experience, tune in what I'm feeling and just sitting with it. You know, just like as much as I can tolerate, right? While like I feel this way, how much can I tolerate it? And eventually that feeling reduced as well. And I still feel it. I still feel like that sometimes. And what is I it, get when you talk about how much you can tolerate, when we talk about like window of tolerance, like how do you determine that for yourself? Like, how do you know what you can tolerate and when it's going too far and you need to, you know, back off? Yeah, well, for me, I'm not nice to myself. So, <laughs> <laughs> so I I can I have once I learned to tap into my emotions and to my feelings, I just you know, sat there and sat there. But I, the way what, what I rec recommend to people is just to rate, you know, if it's like above a seven or above an eight or something. Just take time out, you know, practice coping skills or find a distraction, call a friend, see a movie, pet a dog, go out for a walk, you know, get a good meal, whatever it is, breathe, you know. Yeah, like don't 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 just like sit there and torture yourself, but see how much you can experience and how much you can name and you know and, and also just see what happens. Sometimes these things evaporate sooner than you would think, you know, when we're like pushing those feelings away, pushing that anxiety away, we're creating resistance and those feelings actually persist. So how much 
can you experience and just see what happens. When did you learn that, that you had, that what you had experienced was trauma? Yeah, probably when I was in grad school already, I remember sitting in one of the classes and just being so dysregulated because something had happened in my relationship and I was, and it wasn't anything like, you know, entirely, you know, significant. It wasn't, it wasn't that significant. It was pretty bad, but it wasn't that significant, but I just, you know, wasn't able to focus at all. And I just remember having this. What an ACA thing. It was, it was really bad, but it wasn't that significant. It wasn't like, no, it wasn't like a breakup. It wasn't like, you know, I don't know. Someone abused me. Someone cheated on me. It was like a misunderstanding or whatnot. But yeah, I guess it is also an AC thing to say. Minimized. Yeah. So just like listening to my body and just realizing, you know, this kind of fight or flight response. Mm-hmm. Actually, several years later, even when I did an EEG reading of my brain, you can actually see the fight or flight response in the, you know, different areas of the brain that were mm-hmm. kind of. And when the woman, you know, the practitioner, she looked at, my brain she's like, oh, did you have childhood trauma? That was just, just like just by looking at how I reacting. And it's like, wow, that beats any psychic ability. <laughs> you know, reading brain waves. So yeah, I guess I guess it was later on. It wasn't when I had my panic attacks or anything. Though when it. did you learn about the term adult child? The term adult child, I, I don't quite remember. I think it's something I think quite a while back. Yeah. Quite a while. I think it was before my journey even that I knew there was such a, you know, syndrome, like adult, you know, child of an alcoholic syndrome, something along those lines. So one of the things that I saw, watched your bit, videos about it, but then I've also in your book read, you talk about kind of the five, just kind of this dysfunctional relationship patterns that adult children find themselves in. Which one do you relate to the most for you personally? So I'm looking at the book now. So we have, it's all my fault. Please don't abandon me. Loving unavailable people, I would assume that you probably, that applies to you. I will give, you will take, mind reading, fantasy pattern, or finding fixer uppers. I was definitely the mind reading fantasy pattern camp for sure. Well, I had my ideas about how things should be in relationships, and I was vigilant and wanted to make sure that unless things were such and such, you know, this is not the person for me. And I was extremely critical of others. And of course, all of this was just a way for me to stave off my anxiety from discovering the reality and the truth of this other person, including, you know, their own traumas, right? Their own thoughts, their own, their feelings, their vulnerabilities. So I wasn't able to share mine and I was not able to accept another person's as well. So because my dad, you know, was an alcoholic, I didn't have much of a pattern of finding, you know, alcoholics playing the rescue role, actually, because I was so turned off by that. Besides when I was kind of like an adolescence, maybe at the age of 19, I did have a partner who did struggle with drug abuse and alcoholism. And once again, that was actually also another kind of relationship after which I became even more avoidant. So experiencing that, I thought, you know, I was going to ask you that actually, like, what were some of your initial relationship experiences and if that influenced you into becoming more avoidant it did it did this particular relationship certainly did because I also did recognize wow you know I when I met this person I didn't realize you know that he has all these problems but then I found this person attractive and I started dating this person and like wow he really reminds me of my dad in many ways right 
Mm-hmm. And so that made a strong decision for myself to not engage with people who you know, have these problems. And I didn't want to be a caretaker. I didn't want for that family dynamics to repeat in my life again. And so I was extremely hypervigilant, you know, about the people that I would meet. And then I had the mind reading fantasy where everything was a red flag, you know, and everybody was like cut off if they didn't follow my ideas about, you know, what a relationship looks like or what a partnership looks like or what my you know ideal partner should be. And all of that was just like an unconscious way for me to remain single, of course. That's so interesting because when I would think of like fantasy pattern, you know, where I would go in my head and where it would be for me, it would be more along the lines of, I decide who this person is like in the first few dates and it's, I, I decide that I'm into them, Right. And then it's the fantasy from there of, okay, I don't need to get, collect any more data or information on this person. You know, I, a fantasy of what the relationship is, like in a much more like uh, pleasurable fantasy route, right? Like I have a, a delusional idea of that this is like a, a healthy partner in a healthy relationship. And so then I get stuck in that fantasy pattern. The mind reading, I guess, would come in is like, the way I see that for me would be, you know, that we sense that somebody's pulling away and then we act accordingly and then in essence manifest it out of the other person. But I think it's really interesting what you're saying about the fantasy pattern of like being quite the opposite, right? Of like you having a fantasy of the ideal relationship and whatever partner or relationship you're in that that wouldn't match like a up with the fantasy. And I've never really heard it that way. So could you explain some more? Right. And and I think it's so fascinating because I think it has to do with that avoidance versus the anxious because you still want to believe in the projection that you initiated onto that other person. And we all, by the way, onto each other and that's normal. And we do. Yeah, that's so fascinating. Yeah. The difference there. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. And we idealize other people and that's also part of the problem. And at some point, you know, what does it feel like to realize, well, like, I thought X of this person, and that's actually not the case. What is mm. the level of disappointment maybe that you experience? Or, or or do you feel like you you trick yourself into not seeing that? Or yeah, what is that like? Because for me, you know, from the avoidance side, it's like, you know, if something doesn't go, you know, as planned, let's say someone doesn't respond to me or whatever, right, for a couple of days. In the past, I would be like, well, okay, well, you know, that person is not for me. Right. And I like literally would never respond. I remember I met a man and, you know, we hit it off. He actually lived in a, in a different city than me at the time. We hit it off. We spent like, I was visiting my girlfriend. So we spent like a couple of days together, not consecutively, but, you know, like met up on a couple of occasions and I was living in New York at the time. And he says, Oh, no, why don't I come visit you to New York? And, you know, I, I was excited and I got tickets to see a Broadway show. And I invited some of my friends as well. And I told him in advance because he was staying with a relative in New Jersey. And I said, you know, you need to leave like at X time, like at six o'clock or whatever, because, you know, there's traffic at this time, but we have to be at the show on time. And he ran late, like minutes late. So, you know, and in my mind, it was like, you know, like I told him and he didn't listen to me. And thus, you know, he disregarded what I said, you know, doesn't care. Also, I mean, the guy flew all the way to New York to basically see me, right? It's kind of a big deal. I was, well, you know, he came 15 minutes late to this show and that's going to be, and I ignored his, his calls that evening and I went to a show without uh, him. You know, I didn't, 
Yeah, it, it was bad. And and like, I was so convinced that I'm correct, right? That this was like, this my mind reading, this was my fantasy. And also, you know, it's coupled with the belief that I'm not good enough. So it makes perfect sense that, you know, someone doesn't show up on time because, you know, yeah, because they just, you know, because I'm not really good enough to show up for anyways. And it was much easier for me to live by myself and not see anyone and feel that I'm not good enough than to allow myself to think, well, you know, things do happen. And okay, maybe he's, you know, maybe that person is not that timely even. And so that's a flaw maybe that this individual has. Maybe it's a little bit of ADHD going on. Maybe it's a little bit of this. Maybe it's a little bit of that, right? And granted, maybe this person was not right for me in the long run, right? But, and, and maybe there were, you know, there's a lot of things that could have been going on, but it was so like, you know, I was just so convinced versus, Maybe the other fantasy, which is oftentimes I think people call it the fantasy bond, which is where you project something onto a person that the person is really not. And then you continue projecting that at the times where you learn that this is not the case. There's like a discrepancy there, right? It feels very like disappointing, right? Or it kind of puts you maybe into a little bit of a state of a panic or, you know, in a rumination or whatever that might be. And then, it, and then it's almost like the projection screen comes on again, right? It's almost like, you know, maybe this was a one-time thing, right? It's almost like the projection screen comes on again. I don't know. What is it like for you? It's so interesting. I, I've just never really thought about it this way. Like for me, it's like, I refuse to see anything bad. And then for the avoidant, it's like, they refuse to see anything good in a way, right? It's like, you project these, like I project positive qualities onto this person and then I choose to disregard any further information that I collect that shows the opposite. Whereas for you, it's like you might have a, an image of who this person is that's in a negative light and you refuse to take in any information that could prove otherwise. It's really fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. How the mind works. What has been the most common pattern that you've seen from working individually with people out of the five that you write about in the book? I'm not sure what the most common pattern is. I think it's usually a combination of patterns. You know, the thing that I do talk about in the book is that the most detrimental, you know, I think all the other patterns, you know, we can be kind about and work through and look at and learn about and just get really curious, um, mm -hmm. you know, becoming, you know, the caretaker, like really disregarding your life to be with someone that has severe problems like drug addiction or alcohol abuse and that being long-standing as being the most dangerous pattern, right? Because that really ruins lives. Like not, you know, thinking of someone that, you know, they're, they're better who they are or maybe like disregarding someone because of this and that trait might not ruin, ruin your life, right? But maybe spending years and years with someone who's struggling with addiction will and mm. just not being do not being able to get past that. So I think that's really, you know, the, the scariest thing that can happen, right? From this experience is becoming an addict yourself or partnering with someone who's an addict and enabling that. Yeah. And just like, yeah, totally just losing yourself and your life, you know, God, and it's so hard to pull yourself out of that. You know, did your parents stay married? Yeah. They actually very recently separated, but wow. they were... Yeah, they were married this whole time. And it was that exact, you know, dangerous pattern where you lose yourself, you lose your relationships, you lose your relationships, you know, possibly with your children, you lose your relationships with other people because this like magnetic, it's just like this black hole that you're in. You know, you might not be drinking or drugging yourself, 
but you're still in it. And that's so sad. It is really sad. So as you started to work through these issues and as you started to date more, what did, I mean, have there been conversations of you disclosing kind of your avoidant tendencies with partners that you've had? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I'm very honest about the way that I feel. And I did, you know, grow to be more secure. And I'm in a relationship now. And I certainly disclose, you know, what how I used to feel, like the things that come up. But yeah, but I really, honestly, I, I experienced the thoughts and I experienced the feelings, but I no longer act, I no on, longer it. act on it. Yeah. And of course, you know, I, I've written the book, you know, I work with people, I have my workshops. So it's not something that remains a secret, but it was for a long time. And so when you have somebody who, let's say you have somebody you're going to start working with and they're just coming to terms with the fact that like, wow, my childhood fucked me up a lot more than I thought it did. Where do you start? What, what do you think is kind of the groundwork that needs to occur to really create a, you know, like a vessel for healing? That's a really excellent question. And the approach that I take is to work on the emotional repair. So helping the the person, you know, go back and be able to connect with their feelings that are still with them, but like really to connect with them slowly. It's a Mm -hmm. process. So, you know, want to be able to do that. And I also don't want to pathologize or make it seem like it's, you know, some terrible disease because I do take the positive approach of, okay, well, you have this trait and it's likely going to be with you. You know, you can't force yourself to be attracted to people that you don't find attractive. You can't force yourself to not be attracted to people, let's say that you find attractive, right? It's just the libido, you can't fool it, right? Your body is Mm -hmm. going to be drawn, but how can you make, how can you find that energy in a way that aligns with your values and Mm. brings a positive impact into your life? You know, if you like adrenaline, sure. But what are some healthy ways to engage in that? If you like chaos, okay. What are some healthy ways to engage in that? And what are some ways that are destructive to you, you know, at at this point and will be throughout your life? Mm -hmm. So it's that. No, I think it's really a balance of like acknowledging what happened, but also being like, you know, and there were also some cool traits that I learned. Like you started the podcast saying, you know, I wouldn't take it back. Right. And you live to tell the story and it's, yeah. What did you learn from this experience that you can use now? Because almost everybody has had it. I mean, I work with people also from perfect families, like literally no alcoholism, you know, just picture perfect supportive families and there's still stuff. That goes yeah. on. And so it, you know it's really everyone and it's just such a combination too you know with your kind of genetic makeup and your experiences so the way that you react to those experiences and everybody reacts differently and just making a positive use of that you know and maybe there will be a time eventually that you're not so attracted to chaos and you'll be like you know what i'm done with that but it's not something that you can force. It's not mm-hmm. something that will happen. And it might even happen tomorrow, but it's not something that you can force to happen tomorrow because change change can actually happen suddenly. And you can work on making that happen, but you can't force it. So what can you do now to make use of it? The one thing also too that I like in your book is where you talk about the faulty beliefs that we ingrain about emotions, which I guess is like really at the, I guess that really is at the core of all of this, right? 
it's like what we learn about emotions that cause us to suppress them. And I think for me, let's see, let me pull this up. For me, the ones that really hit home were only annoying people feel this way. Like I just felt like really needy and desperate and pathetic. Other people don't feel this way. There must be something wrong with me. If I had better, well, you said if I had better self-esteem, I wouldn't be nervous. I mean, for me, it would be like, if I had better self-esteem, I wouldn't be feeling this way. What about for you? What do you feel like were the beliefs that you ingrained about emotions when you were a kid? Any form of expression of anger, any form of expression of even disapproval of others were entirely untolerated, you know, and I, and I turned that anger inwards. So it was not allowed Mm -hmm. to be angry with other people or angry about the situation. And, you know, everything was always my fault because it had to do with me. Right. And so even though I was angry all the time and I acted out on it, I didn't accept the feelings of anger, you know, and that, you know, poor man came to New York, then was like basically ghosted that, you know, that was a true expression of anger. Just absolute rage. But it's not something that I was consciously experiencing of that time. I mean, even then, I, that anger against myself, it was like, oh, you know, like this person's not good enough. No one comes on time. They don't make it to the show. Yeah. So that was something that actually, that was probably, that took me a really long time to incorporate, actually, the, the anger what, piece. Like the anger piece. What did that look like for you? It looked like, well, starting off with being able to you know, tolerate it in the body, just like even getting used to it. Oh, uh, this is what it looks like. And then figuring out next what to, what to do about it, you know, how to solve it and not internalize it. For me, it was more the sadness piece. Mm -hmm. It took me a long time to be able to start crying. And I would say it's really only been in about the past year where the tears are finally coming up, but it was like in my home, what I saw was either anger or numbness, right? So it was either like huge blowups and then the next day it was as if nothing went, I don't know if I had a meme that I posted on Instagram and it's of a side by side and it's like somebody yelling and it says like the night before and it's like, I want a divorce. And then the next morning it's like, how does pot roast sound for dinner? Which was like, you know, what's in my family. So extreme, you know, the world is ending to the next day, like nothing ever happened. So I never really saw, there was never really... There's really ever any sadness for really what, which was a truly a tragic situation. Have you always been able to like cry and connect with that grieving or the tears? And yeah, I've been a, I've been a little bit more connected to sadness. I'm not publicly, of course, but I did allow myself to cry and to feel actually, well, I mostly felt sad because then my anger would also turn into well, anger against myself that would then like kind of turn into just this profound sadness, but it was always about me (laughs) and all my flaws, of course. Yeah, that's interesting. And how are you, is this something that you're working on now or or is this something maybe that you- Yeah, it's coming up. Yeah, I mean, they're coming up now. It's coming up naturally. So I really think it just took having this space. I, I think it also has to do with like the community that I've created too, that I feel like now it's like, I feel like I'm in a space where I have the support to really let that stuff come out. It feels mm-hmm. so good. I wanted it to come out for so long. I remember being in an AA meeting one time and my it, something had happened with my mom and I was really upset and I started to cry and this tear started to come out and it was like two seconds and then it stopped and I was like so fucking pissed off. I'm like, I just want to cry. Like I just, I just want it to come out. 
What do you find from your YouTube videos and all the work that you do? Is there a particular question that you get often, or do you feel like there's a particular, um, maybe like a misconception about what it means to be an adult child? I don't know if there's any misconceptions because it's so individual. And also these same symptoms can really extend to, to anyone. Everybody? Yes, yeah, exactly. I think, you know, these words are helpful to use because there's something validating about it, right? Oh yeah, I'm an adult child and there are so many other people like me, right? That is validating. But people have really, you know, such a varied experience. I mean, I get, I mostly get things like, wow, like I've experienced that, or, you know, I feel the same and, and this makes sense rather than not, you know, I think like with my videos or the book, it's either, you know, it's either people connect with it or they don't. And if they don't, they probably just move on, right? To watching videos about other wonderful things. And yeah, so I don't get too many like, yeah. No. Negative comments. I get a few. I, I ate in one of my episodes and I totally didn't mean to. And I got a lot of shit for that. I was just interviewing oh. one of my friends and I was just, you know, chowing down. What is navigating your relationship with your parents looked like as you've gone through this healing process? It's more of a disconnection, more of a disconnection because and I'm very, I still talk to my parents. I haven't, you know, cut them out or anything. I have my boundaries. So, you know, I just know, I know what I feel. So there's a very limited amount of time that I can spend with them. And I do want to spend time with them. I do want to see them and I you know, do want to support them, but there's a limit to it. I mean, I'm just kind of just very open about it. Hey, look, like there's, when it be, begins to get, you just sense it in my body. When it begins to get too much, I'm out. Or when you begin to talk about, you know, this topic or that topic, I'm out because, you know, I have a goal. Like I have come here with you, right? I have come to you without judgment. You know, I'm not, you know, judging your life or how you are, but I have come here to spend a good time, right? To have a good time, to connect a little bit, to talk, to eat some food, to go for a walk, you know, to share recent events. And as long as that happens, right? It's that's good. But when it flips, you know, I'm out. So how yeah, about you? Me too. Me too. Like? Yeah. It's been hard. You know, they're very supportive of what I'm doing and I know that they're proud of me, you know, but they can only show up in certain ways. And actually we were talking about this in my group today. You know, I've found that when I initially started to set boundaries, that there was a lot of retaliation, which I think is a common experience for a lot of us. But as I've, as I, you know, stuck to them. And I think also too, like the biggest thing that I've improved on in that respect is like less is more. I remember going to my therapist early on and I would have like a two paragraph email or text message that I was going to send to my parents, you know, and like we'd shorten it down to two sentences, right? And so it's like learning that I just have to be very clear and specific and that I don't have to explain myself, you know, because like the more I give, the more they have to work with and meddle and use my words against me. But it felt super uncomfortable at first. And just, as you know, it's like, it's all about keeping the system like alive and thriving. And when one person no longer operates in the role that they always did, you know, the rest of the family is going to try to attack to keep that person in line. And none of it is like conscious, right? But that's just the way that it's always been. So the way that I, and I've said this on the podcast before, the way that I describe it now is like, because it's important that I don't participate in the family denial, 
you know, but I'm also not going to participate in the dysfunction. So what I say is I will acknowledge the elephant in the room. I just won't try to carry the elephant out of the room anymore is basically the best way that I can describe it, you know, Mm -hmm. but it's sad, you know, it's heartbreaking. I'm sure you experience as well, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I think the sad part for me is like to, I guess the revolving, I'm not so much, you know, sad for myself. And sometimes I just think, well, like, you know, I wish, you know, you would have asked for help or there was an opportunity, but then when I really look at their lives and their circumstances and the culture, you know, and the country, mm-hmm. I also realize that they did literally the best, the they best yeah. that they could. And that is also just such a freeing realization. I really, you know, they didn't have the same opportunities as, as I do. Like not even close. There was no YouTube. There's no internet. There were no books, right? They also lived in a culture where alcoholism was absolutely rampant. Every other person is, you know, an alcoholic and it was more accepted in a way. And they, they, you know, weren't able to access the good help, not, you know, not in the country where they grew up, where they lived and also not, you know, coming to the United States because they were busy, you know, just putting food on the table as well as dealing with their problems. And so just looking at at it from this perspective and just seeing how truly privileged I am to live in this time, you know, to live in this country, to have this, you know, access to information at your fingertips, right? Where you can just look up anything, look up a group, look up information, look up an article, buy a book, right? And that, you know, that that is an immense privilege and even have the space, you know, to be able to look at yourself from that perspective and to see what's you know, you, you can change and how you can improve and, and focus on cell growth. So a lot of people don't have that. that. Yeah. Well, all this shit is so new too. That reminds me of something that I wanted to ask you about was when you talk about the difference between, and I might get this wrong, but what do you talk about? Do you talk about daughters of mother alcoholics or in, in, in that part? Can you talk about the two different scenarios that you discuss and what you've found there or what the research shows? Yeah, talk about daughters of mother alcoholics versus, you know, kids of father alcoholics or kids of families where both parents are alcoholics. And I find, and also the research supports that daughters for, who have grown up, so most, most daughters who are daughters of mother alcoholics are also daughters of single mothers, because mm. it's not very frequently that if the father of the man is not an alcoholic, that he actually sticks around oftentimes. Mine you know, did. <laughs> oh, oh, that's just interesting. And so with mothers of alcoholics, it's also a lot more, it's even more secretive than the fathers of alcoholics. And women are in a way more able to hide it better. And daughters oftentimes experience a lot of shame of, you know, or lot of ideas of what it's like being a woman they develop traits more associated you know with masculine traits and of course like you know modern day doesn't make time but I say you know it's been like thousands of years that we've been attributing this trait to masculine that trait to feminine Mm -hmm. right we can't just like override but more traits that are attributed to more kind of masculine functioning which is traits of being protective, more aggressive traits, which by the way, can also serve women really well in their Mm -hmm. careers. Um, Mm -hmm. The more kind of masculine traits that girls obtain by being with mothers of alcoholics, then make them actually like more assertive in the workforce. They make it a little bit easier for them to find common ground with men, you know, who still make up the majority of, you know, the workforce, depending on, 
you know, which career path you choose, certainly not mine. But yeah, and oftentimes women also experience difficulty with becoming mothers. And that's not only with daughters of alcoholics, but it's women who have had difficult relationships with mothers because of all the negative associations they have, you know, with what it's like being a mother. They think to themselves, mother, right? And just that word alone usually you know, creates feelings of disgust, creates feelings of avoidance, creates feelings of anxiety, of fear. So having a mother, you know, what is it like for you to, you know, imagine what is a mother figure, what constitutes a mother? And, you know, oftentimes when I meet women, they say, oh, I, yeah, I never want to have kids. And I just ask them, well, did you have a negative relationship with your mother? And the answer is always yes. Generally, you'll find that women who are very resistant to, and there's nothing wrong, by the way, but making so true, free, so right? true. But oftentimes, you know, people just say, did you have a negative relationship with your mother? The answer is going to be 90%. Yes. Mm. Yeah. yeah, that's so valid. Huh? That's so interesting. So what do you have going on? Do you have anything exciting that you want to plug or what are you doing, lady? As far as the future? Whatever. Yeah, I'm, I'm working on contributing more to my YouTube channel. It's been difficult because I do have, you know, a full-time job and continuing to offer you know, my coaching. And I'm really trying my best to put, you know, out as much information out there for people that is, you know, accessible and free. So I'm really, I'm working on that. I am considering writing another book because I love to write. Actually, it's a book about the concept of anima and animus. And a lot of it has to do with projection and mm. these feminine and masculine roles that I also want to take a modern you know, approach on a modern view. And yes, so that will have a lot to do with relationships, a lot to do with what we project onto other people, what other people project onto us, our feelings and relationships, you know, like even you were talking about, maybe you tend to project traits or attributes to other people, right? And then you realize it's not the case. And then you kind of, that filter goes back on. And I'm, I'm mm -hmm. curious, the long-term relationship being that other person, there might become this feeling and I've certainly been on the other side of it this feeling of you know I'm not really seen I'm not I don't know if you've ever had this feeling but it's like wow like this person really doesn't see me right at some point as well I'm not this I'm not this way and, and I then, feel that way with my dad oh, really <laughs> yeah How yeah so? and it was so interesting I had a, a dating experience recently where I had never felt like I felt so seen in a way that I had never felt before it was really beautiful but then of course he had to be like going through a divorce so we needed to cut that off. But it was, it felt really good to like, to really just be seen for who I was, you know? That's fascinating. So what is it like to open yourself up to seeing people as they are and also to attract someone that sees you, you know, as you truly are. And you're such an authentic person, you know, I can't imagine it being awfully difficult for you, but no. It's yeah. not, no, I mean, I'm me, right? But it's also the other thing too is like the challenge is it's learning how to, how do I, cause I'm part of who I am is I'm, I'm vulnerable. I'm me. I'm, I, you know, it's, I tell the person on the bus everything about me and like that's a part of me. So it's like, how do I stay true to who I am, but also disclose myself in a way that's appropriate as well, you know, cause it's, I don't want to just hold back completely because that's not who I am. You know, I'm not mysterious. <laughs> I'm not mysterious. So um, yeah, I think that what I've learned is like, 
Yeah, I am an open book. And obviously there's certain things that I don't need to disclose like on a first date. But at the same time, I'm also not going to like hold back from being who I am, which is somebody that's pretty open about who they are, you know? So this has been so fun. Yeah. What about you? What What are you up to? Just doing this shit. I got some good interviews coming up. Have you heard of the adult child or sorry, the adult chair podcast? Have you heard of that one? Adult chair podcast. No, I'm going to write it. Font. So she's great. I just interviewed Tian Dayton again. Fucking love her. Have you read her books? No. Oh, you need to. Oh, they're must reads. The ACOA trauma syndrome. Yeah, I've heard of that one. I'm not always good at remembering names. She's like the, she's like the first person that identified that this was like a trauma thing. She's wonderful. She's amazing. Yeah. So just doing this in my community and just trucking. I got an assistant recently. So like that's helping me to have a bit more bandwidth because I just do everything myself and it's kind of a lot and I kind of don't know what I'm doing, but it's working. I want to do more YouTube. Is it hard? It's honestly, it's hard for me. I'm just, I love to write. (laughs) And then once again, that has to do with spending time alone. But actually for me to get in front of the camera and to speak, it's like a feat, you know? Um, When you do it, I watch your videos. It seems like it comes to you really naturally. Thanks. Um, I'm working on actually because I've been recording everything just through my phone (laughs) Uh and I get a lot of comments like just get like normal equipment and like normal sounds and some of my videos like I also can't I don't like to rewatch myself and I'm I make a video and I'm like okay I know it's not perfect you just post it (laughs) post and ghost yeah I'm just gonna you know shoot it and then it's just you know just just do it and so yeah, I'm working on actually a friend who's volunteering to give me his camera. So I'm excited about that. Oh, um, nice. Phone, you yeah. can get them for pretty cheap. Yeah. I think if you just get like a, I don't know, there's all this, like I have a Logitech one too. I'm not using it now, but yeah, you can do all this for pretty cheap. Same thing with a microphone. You don't need to spend a lot of money. So yeah, it needs to get going on it. I, I bought microphones. <laughs> I know it's like simple for other people, but for me, for some reason, it's- okay, I totally get it you know, come to my house, set it up, show me, write a book, you know, for idiots on how to use this microphone. <laughs> and, I get you know, it. But yeah, YouTube, it's, um, you know, I feel like, you know, I'm on a mission to spread this information, talk about it, and not just the adult child, but it was interesting too, because the writing this book was like so much healing just for me, you know? And then once I- Was there anything I- super profound? Like, was there a profound aha that you had while writing it? Like one in particular? You know, I didn't have any ahas, but it was so, all of this information was in my mind, you know, and it was like sitting there very disorganized. And it was like this never ending pop up of this thought and aha, this is how these relationship configurations work out, you know? And it was just, it was too much, literally. Like it was so much that then putting it down on paper and just organizing it, you know, like everything that's in my book has been in a hall, like everything in it at one point or another throughout the years. But then the the healing part was actually sitting there, organizing it, you know, point by point. And, you know, I'm still learning. And a lot of the times I'm like, oh, you know, I should have included that or like this, I feel differently about now or whatever. Mm-hmm. Organizing it, you know, putting it out there has been it's just that's been like tremendous healing and then once that cycle was over it was almost like oh wow now there's all this like other stuff that is interesting that I see and can think about and experience and you know seeing my clients seeing other people and of course you know since the release of the book I've had a lot of people come work with me right and so getting to know 
stories, you know, on a mm-hmm. deeper and so, you know, I get to learn the experience of others, you know, populates my mind with like other ideas. And so now I'm on the, you know, I'm now on this like animals tra- train, the projections, the relationships, the like a further expansion of um, also just like attachment styles, but from more of a depth psychological view, which is what I was you know, trained on, specifically graduate institute where I went to school. So yeah, so I'm kind of working on that. That's awesome. Well, let's stay in touch and we'll definitely do this again. Okay, awesome. Thank you so much, Andrea. Let it